Chris Seedman is the preacher at the Branch Church in Dallas, and he tells a story about a neighbor of his who grew up Jewish but wasn't religious and started coming over to Chris's house and would chat with him and his wife about their faith. And at, at one of these conversations, uh, this neighbor asked Chris, when did Jesus die the second time? And Chris said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And she said, well, I mean, Christians believe that Jesus died and rose again. So when did he die the second time after he rose? And Chris said, we don't believe that he died a second time. And his neighbor went silent and she leaned over the kitchen counter and she whispered, so y'all believe he's alive? And he whispered, yes. And I, I love that story because it's so simple to Christians who've grown up in the church, but it's, it's not obvious. Christians actually believe that Jesus lives right now. He was born 2,000 years ago. He died on a Friday afternoon. On Sunday of that same weekend, he rose from the dead, and then he never died again. He ascended into heaven and always lives there. And because Jesus is alive, new things are possible. That's what this sermon series is all about. If someone in the tech team could go to the next slide, I think this is it's, it's old to Christians, but it should be new. We believe He was born. We believe He died. We believe He rose. We believe He ascended, and we believe He lives. And so much changes because of these truths. We started off with the truth that because Jesus lives, we can press on. Even when we're exhausted, even when our willpower is weak, even when we feel bogged down by the world and all of its challenges, we believe that because Jesus is alive, He can strengthen us and He can give us the virtue of endurance. Two weeks ago, we saw that because Jesus lives, we can please God. The Apostle Paul talks about this in the letter to the Romans, that the Holy Spirit fills Christians and we are able to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. We can love God and love others. It's possible. We aren't doomed to fail. And last week, we talked about supernatural possibilities, that because Jesus lives, we see miracles. We looked at the story of the Apostle Peter being miraculously freed from prison. Now, this week, we're talking about something true, but also something that our human imaginations find hard to fathom. So, I'm asking you this morning to be open to something that I can hardly describe using mere human terms. I'm asking us to look beyond this world, beyond this universe, and to try to imagine something beyond it. Because for 2,000 years, Christians have believed in something called heaven. And I know that when a, when a preacher mentions heaven, a lot of people just roll their eyes. They picture babies with tiny wings zipping around the sky. They picture this kind of ethereal, misty, cloudy place where people are playing harps or something like that. But when the Bible... When the Bible depicts heaven using all of this symbolic imagery, it's not some tame and boring place. It's depicted like the most beautiful city in existence. It, it would make the Sistine Chapel look like a child's sandcastle. It's depicted as this massive and glorious temple with billions of angels who are so glorious you'd be tempted to worship them instead of God. The heaven that the Bible talks about is paradise. 
Not because it's tame, but because it's holy, and it's created by a holy God. And it's so holy that when people in the Bible claim to have a a vision of heaven, even just a glimpse of it, they have a consistent response. I don't belong here. When the prophet Isaiah has a vision of heaven, he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from an unclean people. When the apostle Paul has a vision of heaven that he writes about in 2 Corinthians, we're told that he's caught up into the third heaven and he hears inexpressible things not permitted to tell. When the beloved apostle John sees a vision of Jesus in heaven, he actually falls at Jesus' feet as if he were dead. So clearly, whenever God shows heaven to us, we know, man, we don't deserve it. We don't belong there. But here's the good news of the gospel. I'm just going to spoil this whole sermon at the beginning. Because he lives, we call heaven home. Now, that, that sentence is in the present tense, and that's on purpose, I want to spend the rest of this morning talking about why this is true, because fallen humans don't deserve heaven. We don't deserve God's presence. If we ever even saw it just for a second or a minute, we would say, I don't belong here. And yet, we know that when when Christians die and they go to heaven, that they can say in some deep and profound sense, I'm coming home. I'm coming back. How how is that possible? Well, I think Paul's letter to the Ephesians tells us how it's possible. So if you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. If you see a black Bible in the pew racks in front of you, I'll give you the page. It's page 947. If you have a Bible app on your phone, you can get that out too. Go to the New Testament and then go to Ephesians chapter 1. So in the black Bibles, page 947. And we're going to walk through this passage again to see how this is possible that we call heaven home. So this letter is written to a church in uh, a set of churches in modern day Turkey in a city called Ephesus and Paul tells us what he has been asking God for on the behalf of the, of the Christians there, okay? So we have these verses on the screen. If nothing else works, you can look up here. Paul writes, "For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you and remembering you in my prayers, okay? In the, in the next verse, okay, he, he says, I keep asking, that is, in all of those prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you, and then he starts listing things that he wants God to give to the Christians in Ephesus. He lists five things, okay? First, he says, I want God to give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you would know God better. The second thing he prays for is that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So he's not talking for physical sight. He's talking about some kind of spiritual sight that would be enlightened. Third, he says, so that you would know the hope to which he has called you. In the next verse, he says that he wishes that God would have them know the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people. That's fourth. And then fifth and finally, his incomparably great power for all of us who believe. So Paul is asking for all of these gifts from God to the church. Now, all Christians have these gifts to some extent, but I think Paul believes there's always more. 
So he's going to go back to God and pray for all of these gifts to be experienced at a deeper level and to a deeper extent. And Paul is so confident that they can receive more of these gifts because God is powerful. He's almighty. That's what he says in the next verses in 19 and 20. He says, that power, that almighty power, that incomparably great power, is the same power or strength that God has already shown when he, ex- he exerted that power to raise Christ from the dead and seat him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Now, if you've been to one of our services, you know that at the end of our confession of faith, at the end of the service, we actually talk a lot about this, this idea that, that Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. So Paul is saying, this is what happened to Jesus. The same divine power caused three things. The resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, and you can take this vocab word home today, the session of Jesus, his, his seating at the right hand of God. Okay, that the, the session of Jesus, where he sits, is not just some interesting poetic image that Paul makes up. Where Jesus is seated tells us where Jesus is in the cosmic order of all things. Look at the next verse. Paul says, Jesus Christ is far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, and every name that is invoked. The pagans at his church, or the people who used to be pagans, would have invoked names of the gods. And he says, no, 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 Jesus is so much more powerful than that, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Stop for a second here in chapter 1 and think about what Paul is saying. He's saying that Jesus of Nazareth, a rabbi who lived 2,000 years ago that some people don't even know about, who had no home or place to lay his head at night, that Jesus is now far and above every king, every queen, every politician, and every president. Jesus is above all angelic forces, whether demonic or angelic. They're They're all below him. Now, I I bet that some of the Ephesian Christians of the the first century may have felt powerless. And so what what Paul is saying is, no, 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 you're not powerless. Every earthly and spiritual power is below your master, the power of Jesus Christ. That's where this Jesus is seated. This is where he is in the org chart of the universe. He is at the top. Paul goes on in verses 22 and 23, God placed all things under his feet. He appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Okay, I want to stop right here, pause, and slow down. Jesus is not just alive. He is in charge. He didn't just survive death. He exalted, he was exalted to the highest place. Just think about that for a second. The heart of Jesus still beats right now in heaven. The dominion and rule and power of Jesus still extends over all things. Jesus lives and reigns. And Paul has no issue very smoothly transitioning from all these true things about Jesus to start talking about true things about Christians. If you, if you go to the next verse, it's, it transitions right into chapter 2. 
Paul starts listing all the things that were true about us before we knew Jesus. We're going to put this list up on the screen for us, okay? Paul says, as for you, this is the church in Ephesus, y'all were. That's past tense. He lists everything true about Christians before they were Christians. He says, you were dead in your transgressions, you were dead in your sins, you were following the ways of the world, and then he has this great title for Satan. He says, you are following the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is at work, and those who are disobedient. That's just a long way of saying the devil, okay? And then he says, you were gratifying the, the cravings of the flesh. This is what was true about you before Jesus. You had a lot of problems, Christians in Ephesus, that you could not overcome, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But then Paul transitions and says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, has changed us. And then he starts using a new tense. He starts saying, you have been. Things have changed in you. This is what God has accomplished in you. And then he starts listing it on the right side of the screen. He, he says, you have been made alive with Christ. You have been saved by grace through faith. You have been raised up with Christ. You have been seated with Him in the heavenly realms. I hope you can see all the connections now between chapter 1 and chapter 2. We can see all of these paralleled side by side. In, in chapter 1, Paul says, Christ was raised from the dead. And in chapter 2, Paul says, you have been made alive. In chapter 1, he says, Christ ascended into heaven. In the second chapter, he says, we have have, are somehow in the heavenly realms. In the first chapter, he says, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And somehow, in chapter 2, he says, we have been seated with Christ. Now, perhaps I'd be willing to bet some people in this room are saying, well, that doesn't make much sense, Paul, because I'm not raised from the dead. I'm living my life on earth. I can look around and tell that this is not heaven. What are you talking about? What are you getting at? I think the major difference between Paul and us is that he viewed our relationship with Christ as so much deeper than we do. Because we often think of our relationship with Jesus as an idea that we hold in our minds. We believe the concept, the proposition that Jesus is alive. But Paul believes in something so much deeper. He believes that we are united to the person of Jesus. In other words, our relationship with Jesus is not just an affiliation. It's not just an association. It's not just an idea. It's a union. Now, I know I know we are reaching the edge, like the very edge and very limit of our human imaginations, but I think Paul believes this. In his letter to the Romans, when he's talking about baptism, he says this as if it's so obvious. He goes, don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus are baptized into his death? He says, don't you know that we are buried with him in baptism? Don't you know that I have been crucified with Christ? That, that's beyond our human imagination, but Paul is saying in some profound and spiritual and true sense, baptism unites you to Jesus. And so here in Ephesians, Paul is saying when, 
When you're baptized, when you're united to Jesus, somehow, in a deep and profound sense, you're united to Him even as He is in heaven. I know for us that's hard to fathom. It's hard to comprehend. It's hard to understand. But I don't think Paul just made this up. Jesus Himself says, I am the vine and you are the, say it out loud, branches. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you've ever seen a vine, you know how united branches are to the vine. It's hard to imagine them even separate. They're so unified, so bound up together, it's hard to distinguish. Paul believes in a deeper relationship with Christ than we do. And I think we can, we can begin to fathom this and understand this more when we look at the verse that connects these two chapters, okay? Paul says, God appointed Jesus to be head over everything for the church, and then he describes what the church is. He says, it is his body, and it is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Can you believe that? That the church is full of Jesus. Christ fills the church his body on earth. Paul repeats this same idea in multiple ways in in other letters. Even if you don't buy into Ephesians, you can go to Philippians and Paul says, we have citizenship in heaven. In Colossians, Paul says, and I can't even begin to picture this in my head, he says, we are hidden with Christ in God. That's all in the present tense. Which I think brings us full circle to what we were talking about in the beginning. Because Jesus lives, we call, in the present tense, we call heaven home. Now, I think by ourselves, if we're just wallowing in our sin, if we don't know Jesus, heaven is a foreign place. We would be like Isaiah if we saw it. We would say, woe is me, I'm unclean, this place is way too holy for me. But because Jesus is not just an idea we accept, but a person to whom we're united, heaven becomes our home. I think the letter of Hebrews is so helpful on this point. The author, whoever authored Hebrews, basically argues that once you become a Christian, your entire sense of where you belong actually reverses. You actually begin to feel like an alien in this world, that you don't belong here, but you do belong in heaven. In Hebrews 13, the author writes, for here we do not have an enduring city. When you're outside of Jesus, earth kind of feels like home, but we're not fit for heaven. But when you're united to Jesus, earth doesn't feel like home anymore. Heaven is where we belong. This is why we cannot, we cannot undervalue our belonging in heaven. In the early 1900s, the Russian Empire extended, listen to these countries, okay? It extended from modern-day Finland all the way down to Turkey, all the way across to India, and then all the way east to Korea. It was the third largest empire of world history. You can see why some of the issues we're dealing with today are true. It's because they want to come back to that time. It was... It was massive, it was powerful, and it amassed a lot of wealth, not for the people, but for the ruler. His name was Tsar Nicholas, and y'all, there are stories of the Tsar's children, his kids, playing with the Russian crown jewels like they were toys. 
If you go to England, you can see the crown jewels, but they're behind locked cases because they're so valuable. These kids were playing with jewels that were worth billions of dollars, and the children had no idea. Y'all, we have something more valuable than all the wealth of the world, all of the power of the world, because we call heaven our home. Heaven makes crown jewels look cheap. The theologian Ben Myers says this about the the power of baptism, and I wanted to read it to y'all this morning because I think it's so important to understand the value of being united to Jesus. He says, the Christian faith is mysterious, not because it's so complicated, because it's so simple. A person doesn't start with baptism and then advance to higher mysteries. He says, in baptism, each Christian already possesses our faith in its fullness. Go to this next slide. It says, we are not beggars hoping for scraps. We are like people who inherit a vast estate, and that inheritance remains the same whether we grasp its magnitude or not. But this last line is so important. The better we grasp it, the happier we are. The moment you're baptized, you get to call heaven home. Can you believe that? Something that gives you eternal life forever to be in the presence of God for all eternity. That's what you have. Don't throw it away. Don't undervalue it. The irony of following Jesus is that He bids us to come and die, and yet He gives us eternal life. He tells the rich young ruler, sell everything you have, and yet He offers a pearl of great price. He says, if you lose your life, you will find it. Paul says, we're crucified with Christ, and yet we're seated with Him in the heavenly realms. That's the paradox. I do this Bible study with an LFC student named Osvaldo each week, and we were going through the Sermon on the Mount one time, and uh, we were looking at this line that just, um, this whole section that just challenged us so much. If, if you ever want to be challenged in your faith, go reread the Sermon on the Mount. At one point in the sermon, Jesus just says so casually, don't worry. There's no point to worrying. To a college student studying architecture in his final exams and a new father, that sentence doesn't make any sense. There's, of course, there's a point in worrying. That's how I live my life. And he says, don't, no, no, no. Jesus says, don't worry about your clothes or food or what you're going to drink. He says, the pagans run after all of those things, but your heavenly Father knows you need them. And then he says this, this line that, that we talked about so much. Jesus says, seek first his kingdom, and all these things shall be given to you. And we were puzzling over this line. We thought, there's no way that, God, that, that this means God is going to make us rich or happy or healthy if we just follow Jesus. But what does it mean? What does it mean, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you? Where we landed was that when you run after the things in this world that you want or need and you ignore God, you lose God and all the things you want and need. But when you run after God, God gives you Himself and everything you really needed in the first place. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, aim at earth and you get nothing. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. 
Aim at earth, and you get nothing. Aim at heaven, and you get earth thrown in. This is what God offers us more than we ever could imagine. We can't undervalue what we've been given. We can't throw it away. Christians believe that Jesus is in heaven right now, fully alive. And somehow, because He lives, He has made heaven our home too. So the last place we deserve to get to see is the place we will call home forever. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at the gift of heaven. We didn't deserve for you to come in the flesh. We didn't deserve for you to save us from our sins. We didn't deserve forgiveness. We didn't deserve new life in Christ. We definitely don't deserve heaven or eternal life or seeing you face to face. And yet because we're bound to Jesus, because we are a member of his body, we can call heaven home right now. Father, I pray that any, if anybody in this room doesn't know that gift, doesn't know the, the wonderful blessing of being able to call heaven home, that they would be convicted, that they would seek your kingdom, and they would start seeking today. Father, for those of us who have the, the honor and privilege and gift of calling heaven home, I pray that we would not throw it away that we would not aim at earth and, and lose everything. Father, remind us of this incredible gift. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.